Welcome to the Bare Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your sex life and your marriage. And this is part two of a wider discussion that we are having about the book Lies Women Believe. We started talking about it last week with um, some amazing guests, Natalie Hoffman and Gretchen Baskerville, looking at how uh, that book approaches marriage and sex and some of the really problematic things in it. But as I said last week, the book really disturbed me um, on a really fundamental level, much more so than a lot of other books that we've reviewed. And I felt like we needed to do a deeper dive into some of the theology behind it, into what it said about our emotions. And that's what we're going to do this today. And I have some amazing guests coming on to talk to us about that. Uh, before we get to that, I just want to say thank you for your support. Um, this is hard work. Uh, the last two podcasts, especially this one and last week, we're just really slogs because looking at this book and realizing how well it's sold and how much it's used in churches, uh, it just gets demoralizing for me. And it's just not the Jesus that I know. This looks nothing like Jesus. And we have to do better, church. Please, we have to do better. So if you want to join us in this, um, if you're passionate about this too, you know, we have ways that you can join our patron group and support what we're doing for as little as $5 a month. You can give tax-deductible donations through the Good Fruit Faith Initiative of the Bosco Foundation within the United States and more. And so I've got those links in our podcast notes too. And also don't forget something that's super easy. When you leave a review and a five-star rating for any of our books on Amazon or Goodreads or for this podcast, you help other people see it and make the decision to listen and join us too. And that helps our reach grow. So you can help us and you can partner with us because while this is a hard slog, the more people get on board and the more people see the truth about who Jesus is, um, the more we're going to change the church. And so join me for this second half of our discussion about lies women believe. Well, I am pleased to bring on the podcast Becky Castle Miller, who is a PhD student at Wheaton College. She's an adjunct professor at Northern Seminary, and she's been on our podcast before to talk about emotions. So Becky, thank you for being here. I was so excited to get your email to talk about lies women believe and emotion because I knew I had that book on my shelf mm -hmm. in my pile of books to debunk. So I was very happy to jump <laughs> at that opportunity. You know, we were talking before I hit record, like this book was heavy. I mean, I finished it and I was just so depressed. I was sitting in the Sydney airport. We had just finished up our trip to Australia, New Zealand, and I was getting ready to write the one sheet for this. And I said to Keith, you know, this one affected me personally more than any of the other books I've read because of the view of God. Like, what was, what did you feel after you read it? Well, I, I know that I've read pieces of it in the past when I was still in that system and it definitely impacted me in a, in a negative way then. But when I reread the emotion chapter this time, I mean, I was frustrated as a scholar because she just doesn't understand emotions, mm -hmm. but also, yes, very sad for her view of God, for her view of the human body, um, for her view of her low view of women in yeah. general. I, I don't know. I, I, and I'm, I want to be really careful to critique her ideas and not the person. Cause I don't know her. What I was reading between the lines was someone who does not have a healthy and robust emotional life themselves. And the only tool that came through in the writing was um, spiritual bypassing 
mm-hmm. and a heavy-handed use of legalism and rules and and proof texting scripture because that seems to be the only emotional coping tool the author has or at least the only emotional coping tool that comes through in the writing of this book yeah it's really it's really sad so i want to i want to get to emotions because um you know because that's your your thing and that's why i've had you on but before we do that um i want to just kind of take our listeners through a romp through the book on some of the things that she says about the nature of god and and how she sees god because i think that's kind of fundamental to some of the 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 things that i saw so she opens she opens the book and this is this is really bizarre so this is in the introduction this is on page 2 she says we know what it is we as women know what it is to battle a selfish heart a shrewish spirit anger envy and bitterness so first of all i mean really minor thing but shrewish seriously like let's just throw in a misogynistic word there but okay yeah <laughs> um and then she says this some of our failures may may not be so extreme as Eve's. So she's talking about women's failures, right? And then she lists the failures, okay? These are things that are falling under this category. Women whose marriages are hanging by a thread. Women whose hearts ache for their children. Women who are overwhelmed with past failures and wounds. Women with intense personal struggles. Women filled with doubts and confusion about their walks with God. Like that's all under that same section. And I'm just like, how can you call these things failures? They are pains. They are struggles, but these are not, none of these is a failure. Yeah. And that's how she opens the book. So just imagine you're reading this and notice what isn't there. Nothing about women who were betrayed, like nothing about like betrayal, how this is abuse. She's never, she's never naming any of the problems as stuff that is done to you. She's only ever naming what you have done wrong and framing things that you are going through as things that you've done wrong. Mm-hmm. And on the next page, she it gives a list of how she would describe Christian women Mm-hmm. They're frazzled, exhausted, burned out, emotionally unstable, uh, <laughs> uptight, insecure, frustrated, suicidal. Um, but I, I was thinking every single one of these can be attributed to living under patriarchy. Yeah. Like, why don't we call patriarchy the problem and be like, women are suffering all these things because men are trying to control them even in the church and especially in the church. And so women are feeling these things. Let's. Yeah. Let's tackle the real problem, which is yeah. abusive structures. But, but it's instead, the, the it's, women, it's their fault. Yeah. Women stop feeling this way. You know, it's like, wow. Okay. So, so that's how she opens it. That, that's how she frames the whole thing. And then this is what she says about how God treats us. Okay. Um, so I want to read to you this super sad anecdote about when her father died. I think she was about 21 or something like that. If I'm remembering this correctly. And it says this, but in that moment, when I first learned of my dad's home going, the Lord did something especially gracious for me. He reminded me of the truth before there was any other conscious thought before there were tears. He brought to mind a verse I had read not many days earlier, paraphrased. The verse reminds us God is good and everything he does is good. And that's on page 51. Um, so her dad just died. And the verse that comes to mind is everything God does is good. What does that do to someone if you are attributing all these tragedies in your life to God? 
Right. It says God killed her father. Ugh. And she says that throughout. Okay. So here's, here's other things God does. Um, she says twice in the book that God is the one who causes infertility. So <laughs> if you are infertile, it's, it's because of God. She says on page 164, um, when she's talking about the lie, my circumstances will never change, that God has determined the exact duration of your suffering. So if you are currently suffering, it is because God has chosen for you to go through the suffering and he has determined when that suffering will end. And then there's this on page 291. So this is near the end of the book. And the context is the, of this is like, um, God doesn't make any mistakes. And even if you've been through a lot of tragedies in your life, he's, she says this, God makes no mistakes with his children's lives. Someone has said, God's will is exactly what we would choose if we knew what God knows. When we stand in eternity, looking back on this earthly existence, we will know by sight what we can only see now by faith that he has done all things well. Again, this is in a section where she's talked about people losing children people having, you know, marriages blown apart by affairs. And she says, if you had only known what God was doing, you would have chosen that too. Can I ask you, Sheila, how did, how did that make you feel as someone who's lost a child when you read that? Yeah. Like that is just mind boggling that, and I heard this, like people said this to me when Christopher died, you know, people said one day you'll be able to thank God for doing this in your life. Jesus never talked like that to people who died. Jesus wept. He didn't say, remember that this was what God planned for you. Um, and this is just such a heavy burden to put on people. You know, no matter what you are doing, what you are dealing with, remember that God planned this. And if you were truly Christian, you would have wanted it. You would have welcomed it. Yeah, this book and others like it are why I stayed in a number of unhealthy relationships mm -hmm. um, in all aspects of life because I just thought that that amount of suffering was normal for Christians. Yeah, yeah. And that he's using it to refine you or whatever, as we talked about last week in the in the podcast where we looked at her take on marriage. But and I, and, I, and I want to say clearly to people listening, okay, yes, I believe that God has the whole world in his hands and that he knows what's going to happen, but he also created the world with free will. You know, free will is baked into the universe. And while God does intervene, it doesn't mean that he, that everything bad that happens, God planned. You know, if your child is a victim of sexual abuse, that does not mean that God looked down from heaven and said, well, someone's got to be abused and I'm going to pick her. Like, no. God right. does not plan that. And the promise is that God can bring good out of all circumstances. That doesn't mean that all circumstances are good or that the good even outweighs the bad that happened. It's just that God can bring good out of those circumstances. And that's the, that's the promise. Not that we have to see things as good. Yeah. I remember when Preston Yancey was uh, talking about uh, his first child had a number of, of medical struggles. And he wrote really beautifully that the, the suffering in our life is not what God ordains or what God promises, but the promises that God will make good out of our circumstances, not mm -hmm. that God causes our circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's just such a, such a strange way of seeing it. And then I, I want to read to you her version of the gospel too. Okay. So we have, so we have a woman who believes that God deliberately plans for your kid to die, deliberately plans for your parent to die, deliberately plans for you to be infertile. 
and thinks that you should be happy about this. Um, and then this is her idea of the gospel. According to the Bible, from the moment I was born, I was ungodly, a sinner, God's enemy, and deserving of his eternal wrath. In spite of my alienation from him, he loved me and sent his son to die for me. He loved me in eternity past, and he will love me for all of eternity future. There is nothing I could do to make him love me any less or any more. And this is good news. This is written um, in the section on God doesn't love me. And she's saying, no, God absolutely does love you because even though you are ungodly, a sinner, God's enemy and deserving of his eternal wrath, he sent his son to die for you. And that is the way the gospel is explained, isn't it? So often. It is the way it's explained, but I, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think that's good news. I know. <laughs> Which is when, like when I read Scott McKnight's King Jesus gospel, it radically changed my life mm -hmm. because the gospel is the the story of Jesus and the gospel is God's good story for humanity from the beginning that God created us as loved and chosen ones made in God's image. And we were subjected to pain, suffering, and oppression because of the forces of sin and death, which acted upon us. And because God wanted us to be liberated from that and live free like he created us to be, then Jesus came to liberate us. And that's the good news that Jesus frees us from death and sin and slavery. That's yeah. good news because God loved us so much. Yeah, exactly. And that's just, it's, it's such a, it's a different emphasis, right? Like we're still talking about Jesus, but, but when we say, look, the good news is you are a worm. You are disgusting. God can't stand to look at you. And so he killed his son instead so that instead of seeing you, he sees you through the lens of Jesus so that now God can look at you. And okay, that is God so killing his, God, God <laughs> killing his son. Like that's just not like, people in the, the podcast can't see, but I'm literally like pulling my hair right now. Like <laughs> the idea that God killed God's son the Romans killed God's son. <laughs> mm -hmm. Jesus went into to death and broke it from the inside, but God did yeah. not kill God's son. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, we just, it, it's just such a different way of seeing who God is. Like this makes God really into quite a monster. He can't, he can't even handle you because you're disgusting. So God's a monster. You're disgusting. And this is supposed to be good news. This is all in the section on how God loves you. But the funny thing is just a few pages after this, she gets really, really upset at a woman um, who says, even after I was saved, I thought I was equal to pond scum, which threw her into a depression. But like Nancy Lee DeMoss basically just described you as pond scum. So I'm not quite sure why it's so wrong for her to feel like, like she's pond scum when that is what Nancy says the gospel is. You are pond scum and God and, and Jesus, uh, God, yeah, God killed Jesus so that, um, so that you could be saved. And yeah, it's just, it's just really weird. And so what is Nancy's solution to all of this problem, all of these problems that, you know, that God, God is bringing suffering upon us so that we can come to know him better. And we need to rejoice in any circumstances that we have. And we need to realize that we are only deserving of death. Well, here it is. Um, she praises the Puritans and she says this because they walked in close communion with God, they cultivated a sense of the horror of their sin, no matter how insignificant it may seem to others. 
And she, she praises them for always thinking about sin. So they were always thinking about sin. So they cultivated the horror of it. And she thinks the Puritans were wonderful for this. <laughs> that sounds like cultivating a case of religious OCD. Mm-hmm. Like it, like giving someone a mental illness. Yeah. What's the term for? I've seen this on Twitter. Is it scrupulosity? Scrupulosity or religious yeah. OCD, which is OCD, but with uh, where your compulsions have like a religious flavor, like you're compelled to pray all the time, or you're compelled to um, mm-hmm. avoid certain religious thoughts or think certain religious thoughts or, you know, do religious rituals or like meditate on your own sin. Like that is not healthy mm-hmm. and it is actually a symptom of mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny that she praises the pure. I, I just, I can't separate the Puritans from the Salem witch trials. Like I just find it very strange to be saying, look at these amazing people when, you know, you have the Salem witch trials, but okay. Doesn't mention those. Um, so that's the background. That's like, that, that's how she sees, you know, God and his relationship with us and the gospel and, and everything. But now let's, let's bring, let, let's zero in on emotions since that's what you are here for. Um, and let's start with the anecdote, um, on page 58. So okay. she has this story of this woman, um, who has been set who was in bondage because she believed a lie. She says, when I understood that true freedom comes from obedience, I was freed from my bondage to food. I lost 65 pounds as well as the depression that I had experienced. And then Nancy concludes, Sarah was determined to eat what she wanted whenever she wanted and and in whatever quantities she wanted. Sounds like freedom, doesn't it? But wait, according to her testimony, her freedom was short-lived. She ended up in bondage to food, gained 65 unwanted pounds and became depressed. Not until she discovered that true freedom comes from obedience and began to act on that truth were her chains shattered. Wow. Where do we start? (laughs) um, So she's, you know, she's, she's fat shaming and she's spiritualizing weight, Mm -hmm. which it's morally neutral. Yeah. Um, and just like no understanding of the, the complications that women can sometimes have with weight loss, uh, with hormones and with body changes and with stress and all the complicated factors that go into that. Wow. I know. (laughs) And, and to say that the reason that she was overeating was just because she thought that she had the freedom to do it. And so she was just, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who thinks that like literally no one (laughs) I've ever, any woman in my entire life I've ever talked to or man that wants to address an unhealthy relationship with food that just did it because they're like, well, I have the freedom to eat whatever I want. Yeah. I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone who who talks like that at all. And then the thought that you can, you can just lose 65 pounds super easily just by realizing, oh, wait, I'm not allowed to eat whatever I want. Um, (laughs) and, and so if you don't, and what is the effect of putting that in a book? Like, I think what that's telling us is, hey, if you can't lose 65 pounds, then you're not walking in obedience to God. Right. It makes weight loss a spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. That's so weird. I know. I know. Like, you know, Bible reading, prayer, worship, and weight loss. Like, those are our spiritual disciplines. Yeah. Yeah. 
And of course, we're supposed to be healthy. Of course, we're not trying to say that you don't, that, that, that our bodies aren't gifts from God, that we are to steward properly. But there is so much that we know from research goes in to weight. And, you know, there's trauma, there's genetics. I am blessed with genetics where I just don't gain weight. I just don't. And it would be really easy for me to be proud of that. Like, look how healthy I am and I'm doing everything right. But no, I was just given really good genetics too. <laughs> like, it's just, it, I, I just can't believe that we are, we are turning this into a sin issue mm-hmm. the way that we do. Very, very, very strange. Okay. Then she, she goes ahead and she shames people. So she shames people for gaining weight. She also shames people for just simply liking things. So, mm-hmm. so, um, and this comes up all the time. She says this, almost every mother wants to be a good mother. It should come as no surprise that Satan capitalizes on this deep desire and uses it as an opportunity to, to promote sin. So like even wanting to be a good mother is dangerous. Like nothing is safe for this woman. <laughs> what's the, what's the thought? Like, what is it that Satan's doing when you want to be a good mother? Like what kind of sin is being promoted? Oh, it's like, it's like, um, uh, loving your kids too much. And it's just, you know, not disciplining them enough, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's wow. weird. So, so that's really going to disrupt mothers mm-hmm. attaching properly with their children, which is going to mm-hmm. cause their children attachment issues in the future. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Then there's lie number 37. And I I would love your input on this one. If I feel something, it must be true. So that is, that is the lie that she says. Yes. And she says, feelings are not good gauges of truth. So we should minimize them. And this is a big area of your research. So I know that in the, in the, in the church, we often are taught, you know, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Um, And so we're not supposed to listen to our hearts. And that's what she's saying too. But this just makes no sense. So I want to, I want to compliment something she says correct. Okay. Because I think it is important to, to say where someone gets it right. In addition to saying where they get it wrong. So at the beginning of the chapter on emotions, she says this, when we wrestle with out of control emotions, it is easy to conclude that emotions are inherently sinful or wrong and should be suppressed. We need to remember that being created in the image of God means we have the capacity to experience and express a variety of emotions. God exhibits a spectrum of pure emotions, including joy, delight, anger, jealousy, and sorrow. And he has designed us to be able to feel and express many different emotions in a way that reflects his heart and brings glory to him. Now I can co-sign almost all of that. Yeah. I think that's actually really close to being very right. I would nuance mm-hmm. that God has pure emotions. Saying that our emotions then aren't pure gets a little mm-hmm. messy, but I mm-hmm. think this is correct. So she starts out strong and I would agree with that, but then she goes into these lies that reveal a lack of understanding of what emotions is. So she says, if mm-hmm. I feel something, it must be true. And that's a lie. Um, she says, our feelings often have very little to do with reality. Our feelings are not a reliable gauge of what is actually true, which is basically just teaching people to gaslight themselves. Mm-hmm. If I feel something, I can't trust it. So what I'm feeling must not be true. I do some emotion coaching when I have time in between studies and teaching. <laughs> and I was just talking to a client about this recently where they were saying, I, I don't trust anything that I think, feel, or believe. I have an mm-hmm. immense self-doubt mm-hmm. because of these teachings. So just learning that maybe if I think or feel something, it might be true is a huge breakthrough for some Christian women because of books like this that say you absolutely cannot trust your feelings. Yeah. Um, and the thing is that emotions 
are cognitive. A lot of these Christian books on emotion are saying that emotions are separate from thought, are separate from logic, are opposed to logic and rational thought, but that's not how emotion works in human brains. Almost all of the current psychological and neuroscientific theories of emotion, though there are, are several different ones, we're not entirely sure how emotion works, but almost mm -hmm. all of them agree that emotion is cognitive. So it is thought-based. So emotion is the meaning that our minds make based on our body's sensations, our circumstances, the predictive function of what's going to happen next. Like emotion is a complicated process mm -hmm. and it is very much tied to our thoughts. If you look at appraisal theory, um, emotions are based on our appraisal of a situation. If you look right. at constructed emotion theory, our emotions are concepts that we're constructing based on our culture, our vocabulary, how we've been raised, et cetera. But in all of these theories, emotion is cognitive. So the idea that emotions aren't true doesn't make any sense because emotions are, are construals of true things that are happening. Yeah. Our, our emotions are how we are making sense out of what is going on in our lives, right? Like, right. like our emotions are the meaning that we are attributing to what is actually happening. Yeah. Right. So because there can be a narrative component to an emotional experience, there are times that we are telling ourselves a story that might not be based on facts. Mm -hmm. And then our emotions are coming from the story we're telling ourselves. Mm -hmm. The emotions are still true to the story we're telling, but we might have some of our facts wrong, but that's a very different thing than saying um, our feelings have little to do with reality. If yeah. my husband doesn't return a text and I start panicking because I'm afraid he's been in a horrible car accident mm -hmm. and then I'm feeling afraid and terrified and scared for the future and lost and grieving and all of these things, my emotions are telling me true things about my care for my husband and my fear of losing him and my concern for him. And then, you know, he texts me back, sorry, my phone died and I turned it off. Like yeah. all of those emotions were based on incorrect information and a story I was telling myself, but they mm -hmm. were still telling me true things about what I value and what I see in the world. And there also mm -hmm. might have been um, a trauma component to it. You know, if I had uh, a loved one in the past who didn't respond to messages and it turned out they, you know, had ended up in a car accident, were in the hospital mm -hmm. and I, I'm getting triggered. And that's why my mind immediately goes to, oh no, he's been in a car accident. Well, okay. So go see a trauma therapist yeah. and work on healing those wounds and those burdens so that you aren't triggered. But none of that, like none of that whole process of how emotion works means that emotions are not based on reality. Yep. No, exa exactly. And remember too, that she may have given lip service, that quote that you read at the beginning, which was good. Like that's the weird thing is that every now and then she'll say really good things. Mm -hmm. And then all of her advice, all of her anecdotes will contradict it. You know, she's, so she's saying that, that emotions are good and that God shows a wide range of emotions. But at the beginning of the book, she listed all kinds of emotions that women have that are bad that we're supposed to get rid of, you know, feeling overwhelmed, feeling frazzled, feeling, you know, all of these things are bad. <laughs> And, and they're, they, they're rooted in believing the wrong thing. Cause that's the point of this right. whole book is that, um, the reason that we have these bad emotions is that we have believed something wrong. 
And we just need to change the way we believe and specifically change the way we believe about God. Because if we realize that these bad things that we're going through are actually him doing it, then, then this will somehow make it, make it better. Right. Again, the only emotion tool that she's offering for women to feel better is spiritual bypassing, which is to use Bible verses and spiritual platitudes Mm -hmm. to get past our emotions, like not to feel the emotion, not to acknowledge the emotion, but to immediately go to convincing ourselves it must not be right by using spiritual slogans, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. spiritual bypassing. And that's the only tool that she offers. There's no um, evidence-based emotion Mm -hmm. stabilizing tools. Like there's so many um, somatic tools and, and cognitive tools and, uh, co-regulation strategies. There's so many ways to help ourselves feel better when our emotions do seem overwhelming, mm-hmm. but she doesn't offer any of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She just offers shaming language that you need to, you, the, the root, the reason you are sad, the reason you can't get over this is because you've believed something wrong. So you have, you, so it's your fault essentially. And and right. that's what I find so difficult. Yeah. And not only is, um, not only do you need to believe the truth, but also if you're struggling with your emotions, you're being spiritually attacked. She says on page 194 in my edition, I know of no tool that the enemy uses more effectively to lead us as women into bondage than our emotions. Mm-hmm. So it's not just don't trust your emotions. It's your emotions might actually be like a tool of Satan to bring you into bondage instead of what she just said a page before, like a God-given part of how you were created. Right. Right. It's just so weird. And one of the best examples of how she does this double speak is how she handles depression and hormones. And she, this was one area of the book that she really did change from the first edition because she got so much flack for it. Um, cause in the first edition, and I think you have the first edition, um, on, you know, she, she really did frame depression as, you know, it's all your fault. You're believing the wrong thing. Um, and you can get over it just by thinking the right thing about God or, or, or having better, more faith or something like that. Doesn't she? Or Yes. And, and some of the examples are wild. So in Page, on page 201, she says, for some women, a difficult pregnancy explains with scare quotes, and then in parentheses, read justifies erratic mood swings and volatile behavior. That is so still in the, I just want to say that still, is still in okay. the because I have this, I, that's still in the newer edition too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but we're talking about a difficult pregnancy leading to, to mood swings. Okay. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. if you're, if your hormones are messed up, and you have maybe birth trauma, mm-hmm. you, mood swings are not a bad thing. Like I had a wonderful birth with my fifth child and in-home nursing care because we lived in the Netherlands and it was wonderful. And still on day four, I was just unexplainably sitting in bed and crying. And my nurse was like, oh, that's just normal. Day four is often when, you know, postpartum tears hit. Let me go mm-hmm. make you a salad and like hold the baby for you. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> mood swings just happen and she moralizes them. Yeah. 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 Postpartum depression is a real thing too. Um, and, and she blames that on, on, yeah, that you, that you just haven't had enough faith or whatever. Um, so, so then she goes on to line number 40 is I can't bear being depressed in the, in the new version. 
And this is the one area that she really did change. But it looks like what happened is that she added a bunch of paragraphs at the beginning, but then the end of it sounds pretty much like what she used to have. So she she talks about how depression might be a medical condition, how you may actually need to see a doctor, how you may need to see a therapist. So she says all of these good things, um, but then her conclusions are still, it, you need to get right with God about your depression. And she says this, it is easier to rely on a doctor, a therapist, or antidepressants than to ask God how he might want to use our pain to sanctify us and to bring glory to himself. Again, like God is deliberately planning this depression. Like, do do we say that about like, it is easier to rely on an optometrist, a pair of glasses, <laughs> or contact lenses than to ask God how he may want to use your nearsightedness <laughs> as a way, like we don't say that about anything else that's physical. Yes. And that actually reminds me, like when I was a teenager and I was in that culture, I remember feeling at summer camp one time, like we must've had someone really big on faith healing speak at summer camp or something. But like, I was like, God wants to heal my vision. Uh, people on the podcast can't see I'm wearing glasses <laughs> and I, but I really was like, God wants to heal my vision. It's a lack of faith for me to wear glasses. So for like a week and a half after I got home from camp, I didn't wear my glasses and I went to work oh. without like, and I, you know, I just believe that wearing glasses was a lack of faith. Mm-hmm. And I, I just needed to trust that God was going to heal me. And I needed to step out in faith. And that's like, so your example of, of not trusting an optometrist is a, it's a really good example because that is the outworking of this Mm -hmm. belief. I don't need to go to a psychiatrist. If I have major depressive disorder and get medication, I need to trust God is Mm -hmm. like saying, I don't need to wear my glasses. I need to trust God. My vision didn't get better. I don't have a lack of faith because I wear cute glasses today. You know, (laughs) I also like, I didn't have a lack of faith when I had to take antidepressants for postpartum depression after my second child was born. Like, it's a gift to have medical care. Yes, it is. And I'm so glad we have it. Um, but, it, but it is interesting how she keeps shaming people for yeah emotions or for medical conditions that you really, you know, that, that, that really are not your fault. Um, I want to look at this other example too, of the people that she often chooses to shame or to, to call out. So this is in line number 41. There's 43 lies in lies women believe. So 43 different things you could be believing that are keeping you from God, which is horrifying enough. Seriously. It's like, here's all, here's 43 different ways you can be totally messing up your life with God. Um, But line number 41, if my circumstances were different, I would be different. So this is something that's wrong to believe. And she tells this story. I remember talking years ago with a young mother who had a two-year-old child and one-year-old twins. She said with a sigh, I was never an impatient person until I had these twins. This woman believed what most of us have believed at one time or another, that we are the way we are because of our circumstances. And she goes on um, to blame this woman for for saying that it's, it's the fact that I have these three young kids that is causing me to be impatient or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 you can't blame it on that. All this is doing is just revealing what is already there. Um, and I just find it really amazing that she is shaming a woman with a two-year-old and one-year-old twins. (laughs) Oh, there's another line where she talks about excusing 
your shrewishness, she uses the word shrewishness again, talking about emotions because you've had four pregnancies in five years, mm-hmm. which I just like, can we just not normalize having four pregnancies in five years? Like your body would be a mess. Your hormones would be a mess. And say, if you have a two-year-old mm-hmm. and one-year-old twins, like that's not good for your body to be pregnant that many times that close together. Mm-hmm. And of course your hormones are going to be out of whack. Your mood is going to be hard. And what is also left out of that is probably mental load and mm-hmm. all the extra work that mom is doing because maybe dad is not supportive enough. Like if you have a really super supportive partner, it will be easier to handle many small yes. children and you will be less frustrated. So probably if you're frustrated, it's because you don't have enough support in those circumstances. Yeah. She actually talks about that in another place in the book about how we complain about the men, but don't we realize that they do the yard work. And so <laughs> they're doing their, their, it's, it's, it's insane, but yes. Okay. Um, and then in the same section, she says, this is another example of a woman who is blaming her emotions and her negative attitude on her circumstances. She says, I wouldn't be so bitter if my husband hadn't run off with that other woman. So <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't be so bitter either. <laughs> <laughs> but she's showing, she, she says, this is a lie that, that it's not, you can't blame your bitterness on your circumstances. So our emotions arise out of our circumstances and our emotions are culturally conditioned. We are Mm -hmm. taught by our culture, what emotions are acceptable to express and not express in whatever particular circumstance, Mm -hmm. which means we can change our emotion concepts. Like we, we can over time learn new and different emotions, which is wonderful. That's why I think emotions are part of discipleship. Um, but this idea that basically what she's doing is she's creating an emotional regime um, in a subculture. And she is saying in this Christian subculture, you are not a like your husband leaving you for another woman is not a legitimate circumstance for bitterness to be the emotion that you construct. Yeah. <laughs> she's basically like creating an emotional subculture with rules Um, and it's like, if you come into this subculture in order to fit in, you need to follow these emotional rules. You are not allowed to be angry when you are betrayed. Yeah. And, and then, and then to, to follow up on that, she says this, so this is after the, the twins and the woman, she comes back to the woman with twins. And she says this, that exasperated mother who believed she had never been an impatient person until she had twins, just didn't realize how impatient she was until God brought a set of circumstances into her life to show her what she was really like. So he could change her. And she goes on to say, how God will often bring circumstances into our lives to reveal our really bad character traits so that he can change us. And again, this is in the section where there's an example of a husband who leaves his wife. And another example is in the same section of how God might do this is if only I hadn't lost that child. But again, saying like God kills your relatives, including your children. Yeah. In order to show you what your character really is, so that you can understand that this is who I really am and I need to change. Like it's, it's absolutely mind boggling. Um, That's tragic. There was one line in here that I underlined that gave me real compassion 
for her. She says in my edition on page 205, deep down, I am angry. But rather than express that anger outwardly, I sink into an emotional pit, hoping that someone will notice and attempt to make me feel better. Mm. Like what were her life circumstances when she wrote this, that she had so much anger mm-hmm. and I just want to honor her anger. She probably had really good reasons to be angry. And instead of letting herself feel that God-given anger um, and, and express it to save people and get support, which she was longing for, I wanted someone to notice and help me feel better. Mm-hmm you know, she, she, she bypassed it. She, she tried to gaslight herself into not, not being angry when she was angry. And that, that gives me a lot of compassion for her. And I'm so curious at what, what led to that. Yeah, I I know. I, and I, I see this so often in a lot of Christian authors in the evangelical realm, Christian female authors, is it really seems like so much of what they write is just trying to make sense of a life that's, that's quite difficult and that turned out much worse than they thought it was going to, or, um, they, they're just having these, these challenges that they, that they can't really make sense of. And so the solution is to tell themselves, well, this just shouldn't matter to me. I need to just make this not matter. So if my husband's treating me badly, I need to realize the problem is my expectations. You know, as we talked about in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, right? Like if, if, if I'm feeling, you know, like my life isn't like I wanted because I don't have any friends or I, for whatever reason it is, it's like, well, the problem is you're relying on other people and not God. And if your faith was just in God, then none of this would bother you. And so you need to put your faith completely in God and not in other things. Right. If it is, it is probably because women can't take women don't have agency in a lot of these conservative Christian circles. They can't take action. They can't confront the men in their lives. They can't confront the leaders. They can't call for social change. So they have no power to change the circumstances that are making them suffer. So the only thing they can control is themselves. And so they have to find a way to make themselves be okay with it. And Mm -hmm. so emotional suppression, talking themselves out of their emotions, convincing themselves their emotions are bad and not godly instead of God-given warning signs that something's not right in their circumstances, that they should have the agency to change. Uh, And so I have compassion for them, Mm -hmm. but also then anger that they dragged other women down with them. Exactly. Exactly. Um, let me let me read you something that's at the very end of the book. So this is what she's been leading up to in the in the in the whole book. Um, and she ends it by kind of saying, look, we just need to realize that his grace is sufficient for us. No matter what we're going through, we need to be able to say his grace is sufficient for us. And she gives a number of examples. Um, and one of those examples is when there's no money for rent, you need to say his grace is sufficient. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, <laughs> When there's no money for rent, you actually do need money for rent. And it's not a spiritual problem. This is a physical problem in the here and now. And you need to be in a church community that will notice that you have no money for rent, that will care that you have no money for rent, and that will come alongside you. Um, 
And, and the fact that, that that isn't even an option, it's just, no, no, no. You just need to realize that his grace is sufficient for you. Or if you're having trouble responding to a family member, just don't respond and realize that his grace is sufficient for you. So nothing about healthy communication, nothing about healthy boundaries, nothing about what a healthy church community should look like and how we should care for one another as fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ, just you need to say his grace is sufficient for you. And what I get from that is that her idea of faith, and this is what I see so much in the evangelical world. This is what I used to teach. I mean, and maybe that's why this book affected me more than other books is because I see in so much of it, like how I used to make sense of my son dying, like some of the very similar messages that I would give. But she sees faith as an entirely individual thing and not as living in community. So if you're having issues, you need to take it up with God. Not, you know, we might actually need friends. We might actually need healthy relationships. You might actually need help from other people. And it's just, no, 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 no. This is just between you and God. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. And may, maybe the circumstances of not having money for rent are due to other things she wrote about, like women not having careers. Mm -hmm. Like maybe yes. you do need two incomes to afford a house where you live. And so yeah. you've been convinced not to work and you genuinely can't afford to live there. That's a bigger mm -hmm. conversation. God is not going to drop a hundred thousand dollars in your bank account. In most cases, though, the yes. rare miracle happens, but often those miracles are done like by the generosity of our church body. Yes. Like the miracle is done by the outworking of God's people to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe you need to change your circumstances. Maybe you need to confront your husband about gambling. You know, like maybe the, the reason you don't have money for rent is because you listen to some of the other advice in this book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's this total inability to see that not all things are just spiritual. Not all things are just about my attitudes and emotions with God. Some things are, are about, yeah, relationships where we need better boundaries and we need better communication. Um, you know, where, where we need to say, no, I'm not going to put up with that anymore, but that's never an option. It's just, you just need to realize that, that you should be happy no matter what's happening. And right. I found that really, really sad. And as I, as I started this podcast, um, as I said at the beginning, my overwhelming feeling that I finally identified when I got to the end is that Nancy Lee DeMoss Wilgamuth presents a God who is always angry at you and never angry for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and she does, she does want women to believe that God loves them. Mm -hmm. Like she, she really does. She wants women because she, she gives many examples where women are talking about, they just don't feel like God loves them. And they're trying to convince themselves that God does. And I think she wants women to believe that God loves them. I think she wants to believe that God loves her. Mm -hmm. And I think she struggles to believe that God loves her. Um, and so instead of, again, giving people therapeutic tools where they could address the trauma and wounds from their past that have impacted their ability to receive love, it's just like, tell yourself that it's true. But like with proper therapy, you can heal from those things and you can release those burdens and you can truly love yourself, love others and receive God's love. So I think she wants women to believe God loves them, but I think that her view of God and perhaps her own life circumstances made it hard for her to receive God's love. And so she didn't really know how to tell other people 
how to access it. Yeah. But instead she wrote this huge book and then her family foundation gave out tons and tons and tons of them for free until it became so well known that it then got used in women's Bible studies everywhere. And uh, yeah, it's just, and, and it's, it's had a lot of harmful effects and it's sad. And I guess I just, I just thank you for coming and talking this through with us because I just wanted people to know that this isn't, this isn't the way you need to see God. He doesn't look at you and say, I'm so upset that you're impatient when you have a two-year-old and one-year-old twins. You know, he doesn't look at you and say, I can't believe you're bitter that your husband left you. Like he just wants to sit with you in that. He wants to help you get help. He wants us to build a real community that's his body. And that's just missing from so much of our advice to women, which is just basically suck it up and realize you're the problem. And like, what if you're not? <laughs> what if you're not? Yeah. What if I think not? that's, that's, that's it. That's for me. That's what I got out of this is that I'm always the problem. Yeah. But what if I'm not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am so thrilled to bring on the podcast today, Helen Blake, who's a wonderful person. I had lunch with her when I was in Sydney, Australia, um, and she's a registered counselor and psychotherapist. And Helen, why don't you tell people what you, what you do? Well, I have the privilege of working with couples and individuals. I've been working for about 25 years in this field. Um, a lot of the work that I've done has been related to trauma, some of it to do with sexual abuse, and in my kind of voluntary life, uh, working alongside my husband in the work of response, church response to sexual abuse. So they're probably the two things. And I also teach in a school of theology where we have a Master of Pastoral Counseling course. So I teach in the trauma area, plus also in the research area. Awesome. Well, I, we we really did enjoy our time with you in Sydney. And I just thought my people need to hear right. you. And everyone loves Australian accents too. Um, although we're very jealous because it's summer right now where you are and it is terrible winter storm where I am. So yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, okay. So we're going to work through a few of the issues um, that I've seen in the book, Lies Women Believe. And I, you don't need to comment specifically on, on what she says, but rather just how some of these issues, how you've seen them play out in a counseling situation. So I, I want to read to you a story um, that Nancy put in her book. And it goes like this, a woman's writing. I have a memory of being about six and being told I had no right to live and I should have never been born. I don't remember who said it, but I do remember my mother just standing there and not doing anything about it. I became very withdrawn and it was extremely difficult to talk to people. By the time I was to start seventh grade, it was decided I belonged in special ed. I was accepted into the classes, but there wasn't room. So I went to the normal junior high school and I never felt that I belonged there. I believed I was stupid, not normal, and I should be locked away somewhere. In junior high, I had no friends and people went out of their way to hurt me. And as a result, I withdrew even more, became very depressed and wanted to go to sleep and never wake up. Oh. Now, this is heartbreaking. And when I read this, it sounds to me like classic shame, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Deep-seated shame that does not belong to her and she has absorbed through it being imposed upon her. Yeah. Now, in a way, and the way that, that Nancy describes this is she says the root of the problem is that this girl has believed lies and all she has to do is stop believing the lies and things will be better. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there is truth. 
in the fact that she has believed a lie, but that's not how it works, right? No, no. no it would be very, very deep in her, very, very deep. And I mean, if she was abused sexually, or even if she was abused in all sorts of other ways, emotionally or whatever, She's, we're talking about a girl who was only six then and told she had no right to live. I mean, what is, else has gone on there? That's too young for her to filter it out and go, is this true or is it not true? She's being told this by adults and her mother stands by and says nothing. Um, I mean, she didn't defend her. She didn't protect her. Mm-hmm. Deep inside this girl is a is a message that she's got about herself, which is much more shame than guilt. But somehow or other, she will probably feel guilty about what she sees as all her failures. But in fact, shame is the problem. Right. And I mean, I think Nancy acknowledges this, but this is maybe where our theology doesn't go far enough because to her, the answer is, well, just don't believe the lie anymore and then everything will be fine. But when you tell someone that who's deep in shame, just don't feel shame anymore. Just don't believe the lie. Doesn't I mean to me that just compounds the problem because now it's saying not only do you feel shame, but it's your fault that you can't get over it. That's right. That's right. Well, this is where um I, I think our theology has never addressed shame. If you think about the Adam and Eve story, we all know it's there, but our theology is based on their guilt. Mm-hmm. And while I, I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to work out why that was completely wrong and get rid of it. But in fact, I think it's this part of that is true. But the shame issue not being addressed is a problem. If you look at that story, they know they've done the wrong thing, but they, and their shame arises immediately. It's a reaction to what happened. But what they do is they don't, um, allow that shame to kind of show them that they have to do something to repair what they've just done. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, and God comes to them and says, you know, what have you done? He gives them the opportunity and they just do what we all do around shame. We either close in and don't relate at all or we attack and blame. And that's exactly, first of all, they close in and, you know, hide. And then they, when they can't do that anymore, they come and blame. Now that's relevant very relevant to what we do around shame, but there's more to it in the sense that they did something wrong and they knew that, mm-hmm. that many of us have had shame imposed upon us through things that are not our fault, particularly abuse and, and other sort of traumatic events um, that we, we, we've we had. Um, and when we've done nothing wrong but we feel shame, we don't know what to do with that. We don't even know what it is, but usually we'll call it guilt. I feel guilty. I can't respond to this or I can't get over it. That's been, in some of the abuse work I've done, the sense of guilt expressed is really high, but getting at shame, which is important to realise, I mean, that's what we really need to do first. We need to kind of notice what shame is telling us. Is it telling us we've done something terrible or is it telling us that somebody has done something terrible to us and what do we do about it? I think the key when we're relating to people around this Yes, making sure that we tell them that they didn't do the wrong thing, but also helping them see that the shame doesn't belong to them. Mm-hmm. Somebody else has been, you know, has committed an act of guilt against them. It might be calling them something like, you know, having no right to live or, you know, shouldn't have been born. I mean, what are they going to do with that? Well, what's wrong with me? And that's mm-hmm. what shame's about. What's wrong with me? 
And when you take people in a counseling situation, like that's, that's something pretty deep seated to get over. Like, it's not, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, you just need to believe differently. It's like, that needs real healing, doesn't it? It does. And it needs, it, it, it's, I mean, to be perfectly honest, and I think this is one of the problems we've got with the victorious Christian life, is that I think the life of a Christian is an ongoing struggle against all the stuff that we, we do ourselves and that other people do to us. And we keep on having to work at it. And my experience with people who've experienced sexual abuse trauma, particularly at a very young age, or then consistently through their life, and some people seem to get it, you know, further and further on, they it's very difficult to shed that. And sometimes with long-term work, I'm coming back into it. We can, it's like we come round and round. They they make a bit of, they kind of get it that it wasn't their fault but it's still fairly intellectual. Oh, I see. He shouldn't have done that to me. Oh, but then what's, you, you've sort of uh, alluded to this. Uh, I think it's held so deep inside of us that we, we have to keep coming back to helping people to see that's actually what's happened, but it isn't actually all of the story. Mm -hmm. It isn't all of the truth. And I think, yeah, and that's just, I mean, to me, that's just such a moment of compassion that people need and um, and that's, I think what, that's what bothers me with messages like this is it's not full of compassion. It's full of blame. Well, why can't you get over it? You just need to stop yeah. believing a lie. Um, and that's what I see over and over again in this kind of mentality where it's telling people who have been through bad things, well, you just need to realize that, you know, you need to work harder. You need to try harder. You need to, to not think of yourself so much. Right. Um, and it, yeah, she gives another absolutely. example of this which just boggles my mind because one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said, one of the most healing things I think that Jesus ever said was love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that as you love yourself is so beautiful because it's giving us permission to love ourselves. And it's saying, Hey, you know, you can't really love your neighbor unless you love yourself. Like we, it's, you know, it's we, reflecting that whole message of God giving us life. Yeah. And urging us to have the blessing of life. And yeah. that's what that is about. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, but yeah. the way that she turns this book around, this 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 verse around in this book is to say, hey, women, you know, it's not really about loving yourself. Your problem is that you love yourself too much. And what this verse is telling us is that we need to deny ourselves. And I'm just curious, like, I, I really want to ask someone who deals with this on a daily basis in your counseling sessions. Do you tend to find that your female clients love themselves too much or not enough well I've not really often heard that I've certainly read that and I know it's around but the thing that I find is that women are very keen to form the traditional woman's role even when they're not all that conscious of it um, mm -hmm. that they're doing that because of how they've been it might depend on um, a little bit on generation but certainly for me you know I, I, I knew where the, what a woman's place was when I got married and it wasn't because my husband tried to put me in that place it was because <laughs> I had the idea of what it meant to be a good wife and and that's about sacrifice and about putting the man first and all that kind of stuff that I think is both in terms of tradition secular and otherwise because it's to do with whole pat patriarchal you know history mm -hmm. that human beings have got but I think it's also to do with the teaching on um, submission. Yeah. And so, you know, women kind of know where they fit. And, and I think when they fight back, um, depends on who they're partnered with, but when they fight back or, or stand up for themselves, if, if the man that they're with can't deal with that, then they're really in trouble. 
yeah. um, because they, they go back into their place. Uh, yeah. They might stand up, but they can't hold it. So there's this idea of, um, you know, I have to, and, and even I have to serve others. I mean, it might even be in the relationships with their female friends. You know, somebody does something they don't like, but they they put up with it um, because they don't, they, they think, well, this is what it costs me to be a friend or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's not about a quality of being. And that's what I think Jesus actually represented. It was about a quality of being. Mm-hmm. everyone was equal everyone was worthwhile of their own self yeah because I think this 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 idea that you must always be denying yourself is really a dangerous message to give to women especially who are more likely to be people pleasers <laughs> yeah yeah I and, think that's I think that's endemic really I, I I really I mean I've been married a really long time and I still am aware when I do that, when I capitulate. And it's not because I'm being pressured to do so by my partner. It's to do with my own sense of what is right to do. <laughs> and I have to, I actually have to work at it. You know, yeah. sometimes the, the disagreements we may have, are, you know, are because I later on get upset about something that really, in one sense, I have actually played into. You know, last Sunday, my back went out, like, and it does this every now and then really, really badly. And we were supposed to have my grandkids that night overnight. And I just realized I can't do it. Like I, I like, and I was so upset, but even giving myself permission to tell my daughter, I can't do this was really hard because you're supposed to do it. But then my husband said, but yeah, but then my husband said, but I can do it. And so the kids came over. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. I played with them for like an hour and then, and then I just had to go lie down in bed. So my you know, I, I read a book to the kids while I was in bed, but mostly, and then my husband just took him home and he looked after them that night and it never occurred to me, oh, Keith can do it. <laughs> like, even though in some ways he watches the kids more than I do, but I just felt so guilty because I was supposed to, and I, and I was really saying, does it hurt that much? You know, how bad is it really? <laughs> and it, it's, it's hard to give yourself permission to actually matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the interesting thing is you're saying, I felt really guilty about it. Um, yeah. I wonder whether it was guilt. Yeah. Or whether you were somehow rather ashamed you couldn't live up to your feminine Yes. Position. Yes, I think probably very true. <laughs> very um, caught up together. I can talk about that, but you know, yeah, when it's even when that's relevant. Go on. <laughs> yes, I think that's very, very true. Um so then the other thing that, that I noticed that that Nancy was really ignorant of, I think, uh, is when she talks about some of the physical manifestations that we can have in our bodies. Um, so can you like, like, let's just lay it out. How does shame and trauma, how, what has research shown that how that affects the body? Oh, um, there's a lot of research on it. Um, I, I haven't actually prepared to, you know, sort of trot them out to you, but there's a lot <laughs> of research on it, but just think of the logic, for example, mm-hmm of if a child has been abused sexually and it's been like involved physical penetration, mm-hmm. that's going to be fairly traumatic for a small child. And I, I just know lots of incidences of this. Um, I mean, I, the mind boggles that anybody can do that to a child, but anyway, it happens. Um, unless there's some, first of all, you know, that it's it's arrested and it's stopped and the child is acknowledged and the child is given a chance to, to heal in a loving, compassionate relationship and there's awareness that this is going to be having an impact on the child. Mostly that doesn't happen. Mostly mm-hmm. it's secret for a very long time and in that time the child sort of developed a lot of ways of understanding this. And so they're going to have very confused ideas about sex 
And they're certainly going to think things like, you know, when they're uh, later in, when they're teenagers or when they're older and they start to work out what sex is about, they're going to go, well, I had sex with that person. And they've got it all confused. But what they have got in their body is body is memories, body memories, which no one understands that unless they've done a little bit of um, digging into the history behind this and the research. But it does mean that things like sexual relationships are very hard for them. But it also means things like medical tests that are invasive yeah. can be incredibly difficult. And, you know, women can have a reaction to a test like that where they've got all this pain and they think they're nuts when in yeah. fact it's reactivated this memory that's in their bodies. And that might sound wacky, but there's plenty of research to show that that's yeah. true. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the most, that's at the extreme, but it certainly does impact on women's sense of who they are as a sexual being. Yeah. Because they're being violated at the most intimate part of themselves at a time often when they have no language to express it mm -hmm. or understand it. And they will blame themselves because this was an adult and adults know everything. You know, yeah. that's adults are the people who are supposed to look after you and teach you right and wrong and all of that sort of stuff. And here's somebody doing this to them. Well, how do they understand it? It's got to be my fault. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then you feel that in your body. And um, I know, like, I've read that um, trauma victims are more likely to have things like, um, you know, IBS, like bowel issues or immune, like immune, immune disorders in some way, like, that's it just right. affects and us even, in all kinds even of ways. infertility disorders, even yeah. infertility. There's not a lot of research on it, but I just know many examples of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think we are aware and, and our bodies do hold trauma memories and not for everybody, but for some people that is, that's going to dog them all their lives. And I think my view, and this is going back to the problem, why don't you just get over it? You know, you just need to forgive and, you know, get over it. And forgiveness is a holy, it's a huge topic. Um, but I, I think um, people are not going to get over that. Um, they may never get over it. But what they can do with compassionate understanding and, I mean, sometimes long-term therapy, but not everybody has that available to them, mm -hmm. Um but if that's a compassionate understanding and they, they begin to be able to say to themselves, this is part of that. This is not me being nuts. This is not me just holding on to it because I can't let go. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think people can actually always let go. And we need to understand that for some people, this kind of abuse and, and all sorts of other abuse, you know, physical abuse, just being beaten and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to let go of that over time. Yeah. Um, I don't have, I, I've often said this to my clients and I think they find this comforting. I don't think there's complete healing this side of heaven. And I think some people have the view that enough therapy and people will be fine or enough faith and people will be fine. I actually don't. I think if we take the fallen world seriously, then we have to see that it's only going to be in heaven. We get released from some of these things. Yeah. And in my work, I really hope that I, and I've seen this, that I can help people to live better in the world. Yeah. And yeah. that they that they will understand when something surfaces again that this is part of that whole thing that happened to them. Yeah. It's yeah. horrible. Exactly. It's and and that's and that's the thing is like this when your body is showing these kinds of reactions um 
it, it is a sign of trauma that happened to you. It's not something you're deliberately doing. And that's another thing that she, that, that she brings up in this book is she lists all kinds of different physical symptoms. And she says, these are signs of bitterness, you know, so you need to get rid of bitterness and you need to forgive. It's like, these are signs of trauma. That's very well. That's, well, that's true. You know, if you can, well, it's, 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 look, it would be good. But I've just had a contact with somebody recently who's had a number of very serious traumas, all of which I've had. She's not a client, just a friend. Um, and, and she's recently just got, had a, yet another episode of this bitterness and like uh, describing something like a, um, a ball of poison inside of her. And she was actually at a different religious group's retreat and had help that she's never had in the church because no one sat with her and said, well, you just need to forgive and you need to get over it and you need to release all of that. They sat with her while she cried and surrounded her with compassion. Mm. And she said to me, after seven months, I've still, that poison has not come back. And it was wow. just like, I mean, she's done heaps and he, I know she's done heaps and heaps of different kinds of work and she's had some healing. But the depth of that, those things that have happened to her every now and then becomes too much. Now, whether that's gone forever, I don't know. But she's mature enough to know this is not my fault. And I guess maybe it comes down to this question is, can willpower honestly heal you from like compulsive overeating or from sexual abuse? And these are two examples that she gives where she is talking about willpower, how how um, we're supposed to pray the prayer, grant me to never lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Um, and I'm just not sure that that's a really helpful thing to say to someone who's seriously struggling with overeating or some other compulsive disorder, which has its root often in trauma and in insecurities and in wounds, let alone sexual abuse. Yes, and like you've, you've made a really good point there. We, I mean, we've talked a bit about sexual abuse, and if we just move away from that one, which is probably the big, the biggest, biggest, biggest whammy that you can ever get, um, then there's all sorts of attacks that come to us that are inadvertent. You know, people say things. Someone said to me the other night something that really, really hurt me because she didn't understand where I was coming from. And I thought she didn't mean to hurt me. She's one of my closest, dearest friends. She's a colleague. And, you know, I did say something the next morning and she was just devastated that she'd hurt me like that. She didn't mean to. So we these are little wounds. But, I mean, that's a momentary wound that we sorted out very quickly. But we have lots of things said to us over the years. Um, my mama had a very difficult time having me. And one day she said to me quite early, um, well, she probably said it to me quite early, but I know she said to me in my adult life, oh, I nearly died having you just as well. You were worth it. <laughs> now, you know, it was only in therapy that I realised that that had had a big effect on me and made me work hard at being a very good girl. And that is still with me. And I'm 69, 68. It's still with me. That I, And I know now, I, I mean, I know that that operates. And so I've got ways of dealing with it. But see, that's that's not going to heal this side of heaven because, because it's been there forever. And I've learned ways of trying to enact that and I have to undo them. But I don't think that's ever going to go away completely. So she didn't mean, she has had no idea that that had, had an impact on me. Um, but that's the kind of thing we can live with. And now that wasn't sexual abuse and it wasn't even meant to be abusive. Right. It was just a message I got that I think has really underpinned everything that I am. 
um, and I have to really work hard at that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of that sort of stuff. Clients come in with that sort of stuff. And I think just keep on I mean, they find my belief about not getting complete healing, this sign of heaven, really helpful. A bit discouraging on one hand because you think, oh, if I pray enough, it'll go away. But on the other hand, when they keep on praying and it doesn't go, then that's really hard. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's being able to speak just to somebody who says, that was terrible, that should not have happened to you. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, even that, like somebody should never have said that. If this little girl that you've described about being six only had those messages just think how bad that would be like verbal messages no right to live you shouldn't have been born I mean how deep does that go mm -hmm. so we do need to help people to articulate what's happened to them as a result of that and it's been really that's where therapy really helped me to see that was there and to see why I was such a I don't think I would have called myself a people pleaser but I probably was I certainly was a mother pleaser and then I thought I was being, I mean, at that stage I was married and had four children. Um, I think I was trying to be a child pleaser and a husband pleaser and everybody else pleaser. And it nearly sent me into a breakdown. So I went to counselling. <laughs> it's, it's really set me free being able to recognise that was operating. And I think that in itself is helpful for people to have someone who's really curious about, tell me a little bit more about this. Yeah. Just sit with somebody while they can talk a little bit about their experience. And that in itself set people on a slightly different path that sounds so much to like more like Jesus you know he sat down and he listened and he paid attention and he didn't just say he didn't just have condemnation for people oh you haven't prayed enough and you know you aren't believing enough and you, you aren't never hear that from him no never. no and I think that's why reading this book made me feel so heavy um because there just wasn't there wasn't a Jesus who was angry at things that were done to me. There was only a Jesus who was angry at what I wasn't doing now to get over it. And I don't think that's Jesus. No, no, no. I think Jesus had just think about some of the people that he spent time with who would have had trauma of various kinds. I mean, wow. <laughs> you know, who sinned? This, you know, the blind man, who sinned, his father or the, his parents or the, yeah. you know, that sort of stuff. Jesus has got nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> yeah. um, it's so easy when you've got a bad marriage for people to go, what's gone wrong there? When a, when a guy's using porn, what's wrong with the marriage? When a guy has an affair, what's wrong with the marriage? I've heard that from bishops and people strongly involved in the church. What was wrong going on in that marriage that this happened? Well, why is the woman getting blamed for this? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a lot of that. Yeah. And I think we do carry a lot of shame in ourselves. I think far more than is this is a very unfair generalization, but I don't think men carry shame the way women carry shame. They yeah. do carry it. I mean, I've worked with shame with men and it's it's different. Mm -hmm. It's different. Mm -hmm. uh, we carry shame about lots of things men never think about. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Helen. I think this has really been helpful and yeah, I, I think it's a much more compassionate look at, at the way Jesus would see our wounds. So I really appreciate you giving us some perspective. <laughs> well, you're really, you're really meeting it right at the point where you're saying Jesus meets people where they're at. Let's start there. Mm -hmm. Let's not, let's not um, form judgments and come up with solutions, at yeah. least until we've heard people. Yeah. All yeah. right. 
Thank you so much. (laughs) So grateful for Becky and Helen's voices and perspectives, um, just pointing us back to Christ and that he isn't afraid of our emotions. He doesn't want us to hide things from him and he wants to take us on a journey to wholeness. And that's what we want to do here on the Bear Marriage Podcast too. And so I hope that you have found our conversations uplifting and I hope that you've seen Jesus in a new way and that he does see you where you're at and he's not disappointed in you. Um, He's not thinking you just need to try harder. He says that he is a place where we can find rest. And I hope that you've done that today. So thank you for joining us and we will see you again next week on the Bear Marriage Podcast. (laughs) Bye-bye.